you know, when, when plants communicate with you, you know it, but you definitely have to be open to it. It's funny to me because it does, it seems like this thing that people are like, oh God, there goes Linda talking to plants again. It seems like this like out there concept, you know, where you have to kind of be on acid to do it, but it's not true. I think that it, it takes people time to really even think of plants as being alive. They're just these things that are there. And to me, they're more than things. I, I feel what they're communicating to me. I have dreams about them. I, you know, they, they visit me and I visit them. I mean, it's, it's just one of those things that once you're open to it, you'll be like, oh my gosh, how did I never hear them communicating with me this way before? Welcome to the open air. This is Jesse Raisler, and you're listening to Open Air Humans, stories of how people have found a happier, healthier, more human life outdoors. My guest today, Linda Black Elk, is an indigenous ethnobotanist specializing in traditional plant medicines of the Great Plains. She serves as a professor of ethnobotany and science education at Sitting Bull College in Fort Yates, North Dakota, and is also currently the Director of Food Sovereignty at United Tribes Technical College in Bismarck. In today's discussion, we look at indigenous plant medicine traditions and explore the sentience of plants and how they're communicating with each other and possibly even with us. This episode is brought to you by The Open Air Outpost, a new nature escape with luxury tiny cabin and glamping options just two hours northeast of the Twin Cities. It's a place where we made it easy to put into practice all the wisdom we've learned from the guests on this very show. You can even book unique experiences with some of them as part of your stay. Learn more at openairoutpost.com. Without further ado. Linda, I'm so excited to dig into your life and work as a botanist and protector and and reviver of the indigenous knowledge of, of plant medicines. And I thought a really powerful entry point might be if you could share the story of what happened when uh, an elderly woman came to you with a burn on her foot at the medical tent at Standing Rock. Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's an <laughs> older story. If you can travel story. back, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it, it, well, it was such an important moment, and um, it had a really profound impact on the way that I worked at Standing Rock. We you know, it, it was an interesting time, of course. Uh, a lot of people have heard about what happened when, um, you know, we joined the fight to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. And it was really interesting because I remember before it was really a camp, um, I would just take boxes of medicine that I made and that my students at Sitting Bull College, at the time I was at Sitting Bull College, um, and they would help make things like lip balm and, you know, some salves and, you know, maybe some um, like elixirs and things like that. And I'd just take them around in a cardboard box to everyone's tent or teepee, oh, wow. whatever they were staying in. Yeah, that was really early on. And, um, and that's kind of how it got started. And then, you know, medics started showing up, street medics and people who have become 
who became friends and then became family um, that I still am very close to uh, were showing up and <clears throat> that was really beautiful. One day, um, it was actually an elder, a woman who was there and she had a burn on her foot. Burns on feet were pretty common because we had to have a lot of fires going and um, mm. she came into the medical area um, and you know she she sat down and the burn on her foot was pretty bad and so of course I cleaned it up really well and um, I started using a number of herbs including one called yarrow Achillea millifolium. Um, there's a couple of uh, Lakota names for it. Hante, Chanchoga, and um, Taopi Pejuta are two two names for it. And I was I was telling her that, you know, and I was saying, oh, you probably already know these Lakota names, you know, and uh, but these are the names I know, and this is how it's used. And I looked up, and she was crying, and I I said, am I hurting you? And she said, no, she said, I just, I remember this plant from when I was little. And she had been to boarding school. So, you know, she had been forcibly uh, disconnected from mm. plant medicine. And she said, I remember this. I remember my grandmother using it. I remember, you know, it being an important plant. And I even remember hearing her talk about it and say the name of it and she said but I hadn't seen it in so long and I ha certainly haven't seen anyone using it in so long and she said it just really touched my heart uh, to be connected with this plant again she said here I am a grandma and mm -hmm. um, you know I'm, I'm actually using this plant again and uh, yeah that was a really beautiful beautiful moment <laughs> wow yeah, to be removed from something like that and then be returned to it, I can imagine that just being like she must have brought been brought back to her childhood and how powerful that is. And I know um, speaking of, of grandmothers passing on knowledge, I know that's something that you were able to participate in. And I'd, I'd love it if you would go all the way back to some of those uh, walks with your grandmother where she would teach you about the plants, their names, how they interact with animals. I was wondering if you could share maybe one or two of your most vibrant memories from those walks and then how that really started you on this path. <laughs> well, a story that I often tell, I was actually just telling it a couple of days ago, but uh, one of my first memories is walking with my grandma and we were collecting wild onions. And um, she said, someday you'll find someone who doesn't mind your wild onion breath and you'll you'll know that's the one i eat wild onions all the time and i have a, a husband who is totally fine with that because they're his favorite edible <laughs> wild plant so i love ramps and i do i i collect them sustainably of course and i use them a lot in cooking but i am going to say something very controversial and that is that I do not believe ramps are the best tasting of the wild what? onions. Yes, what? it's true. Oh my gosh. I know those are fighting words, but um, <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, they're different, right? They're just different. Well, you know, I I do love them. They they're they're like a vegetable, right? I mean, yeah. they're yeah. they're this thing that's big that can like be a side dish in and of itself. I mean, they're they're awesome. Whereas most um, wild onions are kind of smaller, so they're considered more of an addition or a condiment or an, or an ingredient. And um, sure. so, uh, but I do I make an amazing ramp kimchi. Mm, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's fantastic. But I also, uh, I really love, um, here in the Dakotas, we have the textile onion, um, Allium textile. And uh, I believe it's called that because the bulb is covered with a really cool net, like a little piece of fabric almost. And um, yeah, it's it's delicious and super pungent, uh, really strong flavored. Uh, so I I love that one. And of course I love like the nodding onion and okay. I even love Allium vineal, even though I know it's, it's considered a non-native plant. I love that field garlic so much. It's delicious. I make kimchi out of that one too. And it's so plentiful and perfect in like little pancakes, you know, like savory pancakes. So Ooh, yeah. wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, if there's if there's a reason to digress, it's the alien family. But back to your your grandmother. <laughs> yes, I want to hear yeah. more about those walks. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, you know, like we like she she taught me things like that, right? That uh, that it's it's okay to eat wild foods. It's okay to be a little bit um, strange. And um, you know, we would walk and we would collect poke and um, pokeweed, uh, Phytolacca americana. And uh, that was always delicious and have it scrambled up with some eggs. And, uh, you know, I, I remember that the tiger lilies, um, well, actually day lilies, is, I called them tiger lilies when I was little, uh, mm. were her favorite flower. There was a patch of them that grew on the side of the road uh, near where she lived. And um, I, I had always, you know, it's interesting because I was always taught um, after that not not by her but by others that daylilies and all lilies uh were poisonous and that you couldn't eat them and i remember thinking that's odd because my grandma said that you could eat those um and and you know but yeah it was it was amazing because she she like knew everything <laughs> you know she yeah. could talk about how animals and plants interacted she could talk about you know, um, uh, plant habitats and things like that. And, and yeah, I learned so much from her and I, you know, I have to say, I never give enough. My mom said to me recently, she was like, you never talk about me. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I, I have to say that, you know, my mom, um, she grew up extremely poor, poor in a way that, that, you know, most of us can't fathom. And so uh, foraging wasn't a hobby or a fun thing or a a delicious food thing for her. It was um, a necessity Hmm. and and how she survived. And so, you know, she she taught me so much as well. And, you know, um, we would, my mom and I would also walk um, and she would, I I remember one of my most vivid memories of foraging with her was her pinching off the young tender tip of a goldenrod plant and um, saying, here, try this. And I tried it and it was, it was a little bit like bitter cilantro. 
um, yeah. and, and, you know, really delicious. And we picked a bunch of them and took them home and blanched them uh, very quickly, squeezed out the water and just very simply put a tiny bit of sesame oil and uh, toasted sesame seeds and salt on top. And oh, wow. it was so delicious. Just, yeah, with some fresh warm rice. It was amazing. And um, so, you know, like that's always, I, I think I was probably about six or seven then. And and even now uh, in the, you know, early summer, I'll walk along and I'll pick those tips of those goldenrods and, you know, just remember that. I think that's what's so awesome even about my grandmother is anytime I eat wild onions, I think of her and that story. Mm. And anytime I eat poke, I think of her and anytime I see people talking about don't eat poke, it's toxic, it's poisonous, it's this and that. Um, I think of my grandma and about how she taught me better. So, um, so yeah. That's amazing to, you know, those moments when you realize like that these things growing all around you can nourish you. And I'm sure it's even maybe an even more profound light bulb when you realize that they can directly heal you in a way. And I'm wondering if there were moments where, you know, aside from the food medicine use, like when you realize things like the yarrow or other things could actually be used, you know, topically or as medicines, were there any light bulb moments when you started to to learn about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think I have those moments that, um, that a lot of kids, well, I guess I would like to think a lot of kids have them because my kids have those moments. But, mm. you know, uh, that time when I was seven or eight and I got stung by a bee. I was, I was out, mm. you know, just as I was always out, <laughs> always mm-hmm. uh, in these, this sort of wooded area near my house. And um, I got stung by a bee and it was really painful. And I was, I was heading home kind of crying a little bit. And I looked down and there was some uh, plantain there. And I remembered my mother telling me like, this is for mosquito bites and bee stings. Um, and so I picked one of the leaves and I chewed it and I put it on the bee sting and it just was like this light bulb moment for me of like, oh my gosh, that's just, it's, it's incredible how, you know, uh, it immediately took the pain away. And, um, yeah, I, I was, I was super, uh, excited about that and just went home anyway to tell my mom what I had done, you know, (laughs) and (laughs) of course she was really proud, but you know, I, I think about those things, um, because also, you know, uh, plantain has that English name, uh, what do they call it? White man's footprints or whatever. Um, and I, I think that's odd because plantain is actually native, not the plantago major, but of course there's the plantago regalii with the purple leaf base. Uh, and that is native. And I, so, um, when I have these conversations with people, I'm always so interested in the misconceptions that people have about plants, like mm-hmm. what's native and what's not, because I believe dandelions are also native, uh, and, and, you know, what's toxic and what's not. Um, and, and that, you know, those are things I also learned over time and through, I, I think what, what you and I are really talking about here with my grandmother and my mother and with, you know, the first time that I used plantain, it's, it's my um, long-term relationship development that I've had with plants. Right. And, yeah. and it really has taken uh, that time because um, you know, there, there were, was another time when I cut myself, I was um, 
cutting plants. <laughs> I, I was a strange kid. I think I was only like <laughs> nine or 10. Um, and I was, I was cutting some plants uh, to take back home um, to cook. And I can't remember what I was getting at that time, but I cut myself. And of course, you know, there was the arrow right there. Um, mm. You know, I, I love plants that people call weeds because to me, that mm. sort of means they're always there for us. Like those friends who are a little bit annoying because they're always <laughs> there, but, but also, uh, you know, just, you know, friends that you can really count on and rely on, you know, that's, that's dandelion, that's yarrow, that's plantain there chickweed always there for us. And I love that. And so, um, yeah, I harvested that yarrow and chewed it up and put it on my cut and the bleeding stopped immediately. And even in that short time from the time when I first used the, the plantain to, to then, uh, even in that short time, I had become completely confident that all of the stuff I had learned was was accurate, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that, that people mm -hmm. weren't just telling me stuff um, because they had been taught it, but because it was, you know, knowledge that had been passed down and was true. Well, and I remember reading that there was sort of a moment too, where this knowledge, you're like, hang on, you know, this is just as useful today as it was a thousand years ago. And why is Western medicine sort of ignoring these things that have been known? And I'm wondering if, you could talk a little bit about your vision for how some of this, some of this in indigenous knowledge could come alongside a lot of what we see more commonly in Western medicine to create something that's maybe a bit more holistic. Yeah. And, and I would even dare to say um, surpass, not just come alongside, yeah. but even surpass uh, because, you know, even with um, medical tools these days, they're finding you know, while, while stone age tools are considered just that, you know, like, oh, super uh, primitive stone age tools, you know, uh, they're finding that you can actually get sharper edges with certain um, stones and certain materials uh, sharper than you can with steel. And so they're using Ooh. those, you know, in, in surgery. And I think that, that things like that happen really often. Um, another uh, example of that that comes to mind immediately uh, is the fact that <clears throat> I think it was Bill Gates put millions and millions and millions of dollars into a, a drug to treat malaria. And, um, you know, they did all of this experimentation. They're using a, a ethnobotanical knowledge uh, of a plant um, called Artemisia annua, um, which is an amazing antiviral, antibacterial plant. Um, but they decided that using that plant, growing that plant wasn't enough. They wanted to, you know, use an extraction and figure out a pill or, or something that people could take. And so they worked for years on this and, and came up with something that was effective for a very short period of time. And then it stopped being effective and, um, they couldn't figure out why, uh, but I think they went back to the original um, tribe that was using, that had been using it to treat malaria for a long time. And what they discovered is like, you know, and, and I've said this many times, there's no magic bullet compound in plants. 
Um, there's no one compound that's going to heal you. It's the entire plant working together, all of those compounds, sometimes numbering in the hundreds that are working all together to heal you. Mm. And so while Artemisia annua as a whole, as a plant, was still working to treat people uh, of malaria, uh, this thing that they had spent millions and millions of dollars on was no longer effective. And, um, you know, I see that a, a lot. And, and I, it, you know, I do see and hope that indigenous knowledge of medicine can improve care for everyone. And, and you know, and, and because plants, like if we look at COVID, for example, uh, plant medicine has a lot of general action. Uh, my, my friend Nicole Redvers actually was talking about this. Um, indigenous plants have general actions. So there's antiviral plants, plants that are anti-inflammatory, plants that are, you know, have, have these general actions. And so when COVID hit, we all pretty much knew exactly what to do. We were just very confident that, okay, you know, we, we all started like friends of mine who are indigenous herbalists and, and others started putting out lists like, okay, these are some really great teas that we can use. Here's some great tinctures we can use. Here's, you know, some, some, you know, here's a great chest balm. If you feel like you have a lot of congestion, uh, things like that. We, we were very confident and it was interesting to see Western medicine kind of stumbling and, mm. and having no idea what, what to do. And so they were just trying all of these, you know, pe people got desperate and were trying, you know, all of these different medications, some of which were working and some of which weren't. And, you know, some people were saying, oh, this cured me, quote unquote, and this, you know, doesn't work at all. It was, it was just, you know, um, such a crazy time. And uh, I'm thankful that we had those plant relatives to rely on. And, and I think we knew what to do because we had developed, like I said earlier, this long-term relationship with plants. Um, and, and Western medicine doesn't do that. It doesn't develop, you know, uh, Western medicine doesn't encourage relationship, uh, not to the earth, not to the plants, not even to people. And so, uh, you know, I think that's something that they could really learn. Um, but, you know, I, I do believe very much that uh, indigenous knowledge and Western knowledge can come together to create something that's better um, and, and more holistic. I actually feel like, and, and this is kind of a controversial thing that I've, I've been, people, <laughs> people have gotten upset at me for saying this, but I look at indigenous knowledge and way, native ways of knowing. And I, I'm, when I say that, I don't just mean Native American, um, you know, North American. I mean, indigenous people all over the world. But indigenous knowledge is is very broad and it doesn't forget about things like, you know, the way that people feel. Um, it doesn't mm -hmm. forget about spirit. It doesn't forget about vision uh, and dreams and things like that. And so um, I feel like Western science is a subset of, of native knowledge, of indigenous mm. knowledge. And um, it's it's sort of this a subset because it's missing those things, right? Um, although I, I also do believe that Western scientists um, value vision and dreams more than they admit. Um mm -hmm. You know, because who hasn't gone to bed one night 
you know, not knowing the answer to a question and then you wake up and you're like, aha, Um, (laughs) you know, but, but uh, that's not considered part of scientific process according to Western science. And um, for indigenous people, that is an important part of, you know, sleeping on it is uh, an important part of, of uh, knowledge acquisition. So um, Yeah. yeah, you know, I just feel like, feel like they have a lot to learn still, but I think it's happening. Yeah. Well, I'd love to dig even a little deeper into what you mentioned about um, dreams and and things coming to you in dreams and how there's communication that happens. um, Look, like we've learned so much about how trees communicate via underground networks of mycelium and how plants are communicating. And for me, like reading um, Robin Wall Kimmerer and, and Michael Pollan and like hearing how... Um, I guess plants are, are probably far more intelligent than we can perceive and know as humans. And I'm wondering what you've learned or, or, or thought about that and also how you, like the relationship you've developed with plants when you talk about them as, as relatives. And I really do believe that. I really do believe that, that plants listen and communicate and feel And it's not just something that I say to, as an excuse for eating meat. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, um, right, right. <laughs> uh, and and so um, you know, when when plants communicate with you, you know it, but you definitely have to be open to it because I think a lot of us aren't. You know, we're so used to. My, my students often say that you know. Well, I used to, I mean, I would go for walks, you know, people, people tell me I, used, I, I would go for walks, but I didn't know the names or, or the, the value of any of these plant relatives that were around me. They all just blended into one, you know, it just kind of, it's all the green stuff out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I really encourage them just as if I'm going to develop a relationship with a person, I will learn their name or names. Um, you know, it's the same way with plants, know their names and you'll be able to develop a relationship with them more easily. Um, and you know, it, it's, it seems very, it, it's funny to me because it does, it seems like this thing that people are like, oh God, there goes Linda talking about talking to plants again, you know, uh, <laughs> it just, you know, so it seems like this, like out there concept, you know, where you have to kind of be on acid to do it, but it's not true. It's, you know, they are, I mean, it's, uh, I, th- I think that it, it takes people time to really even think of plants as being alive, even though, yeah, you know, they, no, certainly. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're just these things that are there. And, um, to me, they're more than things, you know, uh, I, I feel, um, uh, what they're communicating to me. I have dreams about them. I, you know, they, they visit me, um, and I visit them. I mean, it's, it's just one of those things that once you're open to it, you'll be like, oh my gosh, how did I never hear them communicating with me this way before. Well, and I mean, it's, it's a different language, of course. And I think that's what throws people. I mean, if you would have said to a lot of Westerners, I don't know, a few decades ago that trees are communicating, they'd been like, get out of here. What are you talking about? But it's like, now we've looked at mycelium and we can say like, they're sharing nutrients with each other, you know, through this underground network, like people call it the, the internet of the forest. Right. Um, and so we're seeing how this is, and it's just we just didn't have 
you know, we, we weren't looking at it in the way that allowed us to see it. And so I think it's, you know, changing perspective and, and listening. Yeah, and, listening and is looking. a big thing. Well, and, and yeah. you know, it, of course, Indigenous people have been trying to tell the world that for ever. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, when white authors will say things, people are a lot more likely to listen and be like, oh, that makes, you know, that makes so much scientific sense. Um, whereas, you know, when indigenous scientists and knowledge holders have been telling us these things forever, um, uh, it, it seems like some mystical thing, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and it's like they feel more comfortable like hearing it through the language of science, which I love how, you know, I've read how you think, talk about these things and Robin Wall Kimmerer as well, because you have both like, you know how sci the language of science, like Western science, right? And you know the indigenous knowledge and there's so many similar themes and concepts, but they're they're communicated in a very different way. And I think that's part of the issue is like, people aren't accustomed to hearing it um, in, 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 in a certain way. So there's less of a comfort there, unfortunately. But of course, it's like, yeah, this isn't new. Like, this has been knowledge for a really long time. Um, but we just haven't, like, I don't know, certain people need to hear it a certain way, I guess, for it to really make an impression, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, Robin and I are scientists, right? But but I think that we we both feel and a lot of us feel like, oh, hey, Western science is sort of catching up. It's playing sort of a catch up game. Um, and and that's OK. You know, that's OK. We're, like we're patient people so <laughs> we, <laughs> it's we can help kind of you yes <laughs> no it's kind of you to help um oh my gosh well and the other thing that this brought up for me um I, I recently well it was a few years back I was working on a documentary with a woman named Stephanie Williams of White Earth Nation and she was telling me how plants will often appear like where and when they're needed and I just, I found that idea incredibly fascinating. Like you mentioned, the yarrow was there when you needed it. And I'm curious if you have a perspective on that, like part of their sen sentience is like knowing where they can help or how they can help and appearing in those places. Do you have any Yeah, that's like, that is just absolutely true and such an important um, aspect of plants and, and, and an important like, recognition of reciprocity and friendship you know um i i remember one of my friends um she she had this huge patch of plantain that grew outside her door and she never let anyone you know spray it or mow it or anything like that she would let it go to seed and spread and she called me one day and she was like there's zero plantain next to my door this year. Like not, not one, not a single one. Hmm. And I, I said, what's there? Like what's there now? And she said, it's just all chickweed. Hmm. And she was super frustrated and she was super like, you know, disappointed um, until we were talking two weeks later, she said that she had just been uh, diagnosed with um, fibroids. And um, I said, oh, that's why the chickweed is there. Like, it, it came to wow. you. Wow. And she actually started eating it every day. And she even made some chickweed oil. And um, 
the fibroids went away. And uh, yeah, I have chills right now. Wow. Right? Yeah, no, and it it definitely happens that way. You know, it's like I would say to, to, to you and all your listeners, you know, if you pay attention, there will be almost every growing season, you'll start noticing a plant more and more. And then you'll, you'll see it out there growing. And then someone will mention like, Hey, have you ever heard of this plant before? And then you'll see something on a, on like TV or on a movie or in a book uh, about that exact same plant. And it will just keep coming to you and like sort of putting itself in your path. And, you know, eventually you're going to have to listen, (laughs) but but there's a reason for that. You know, there's a reason why it's putting itself there um, in front of you. So pay attention to those things. That's so interesting. And it's, yeah, it's like it's knocking on all these different doors until you finally answer one of them, right? Right. <laughs> uh, well, for people that would like to to take on a project and maybe get to know a few plants and maybe make something simple at home, you mentioned like lip balm, and I know you've done um, face masks and, and, and other things like that. I'm curious if you could just walk us through like one project that's pretty simple that someone could could take on. Oh my gosh. <laughs> You or know, one of your favorites, yeah. I am I am someone who is a firm believer that these things are meant to be simple. You know, it can be as simple as washing off some dandelion root, you know, washing it off uh, really well, and then making tea, you know? And, and, and I am surprised always at the number of people are, who are like, how do I make a cup of tea? Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm, I'm always, you just, just boil it, (laughs) just (laughs) just put some hot water over it and drink it. It's, it's okay. You know, and, and, you know, things can get more complex than that. Right. Like I, I actually prefer my dandelion root, uh, to be taken into my body. So, um, I don't just infuse it. I actually eat the dandelion root or I will dry it and powder it and then mix it with hot water and drink mm. that, you know? Um, oh, wow. So you can get more complex, but when you are starting, especially keep things simple for yourself, make a cup of tea first. And then, you know, like, like, let's say you were making a cup of nettle tea. Um, just put your nettle leaves into a coffee cup, pour hot water over them, let it sit for 10 minutes, drink the tea and then eat the leaves. I can't, stress that enough. Um, (laughs) you know, I think that, and for people who haven't done that, when you do pour that boiling water over, it'll take the, uh, the stinging quality away. So you don't have to worry about eating them at that point. Absolutely. All the stinging effect goes away with that, with any cooking. And that's why you can have delicious nettle pesto, or you can just, you know, make a cup of tea. But I do really highly encourage people to actually take the nettles into their body. Um, uh, instead of just infusing them, but go ahead and drink that tea first. Cause that's amazing too. So, so, it, you know, I, uh, I remember when, when I first started actually making medicine as an adult, I became very entranced by tinctures. They are super sexy and super interesting and super fun to make, you know? Um, and, and, you know, it, it didn't take long before I was just like, eh, you know, this is really complicated and, <laughs> and, you know, I don't really like the alcohol in them or like the way they taste. And so I went back to tea because, uh, that is, you know, absolutely an important indigenous preparation. Um, my, I have a friend who's, uh, in a re- really amazing, um, herbalist, and I would say a clinical herbalist named seven song. And 
uh, you know, he's done tons of research on, on how tea is really the best way to extract medicinal compounds from plants, just, just water. Uh, but, um, you know, they don't last as long, right? So you have to drink mm-hmm. them right away. Uh, but yeah, so I, you know, I think tea, um, you know, whether it's nettles or dandelion or, uh, you know, whatever, <laughs> the mint yeah. from your garden uh, can be a great way to get started. And, you know, then you can branch out. I, I, I've told this story many times, but um, I'm, I'm going to tell it again. I have a friend, she is a pretty well-known herbalist. And uh, many, many years ago, like uh, two decades ago, when she and I very first started talking, uh, she sent me an email and introduced herself. And she said, um, this is how I use echinacea, uh, also known as purple coneflower. And you know, at that time, 20 years ago, for some reason, people printed out emails. It was a Yahoo address, <laughs> if that tells you how long ago it was. But I, I printed out her email so that I could read it better. And it was three pages of directions on how to use echinacea. And at the bottom of the page, she said, how do you use it? And I emailed her back. I didn't know what to say. And all I could say is, well, we dig it up and then we chew it. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, she, it was for her, it was three pages of directions. Oh um, and, and so I really love those, those simple things. So probably, um, and, and, you know, I, I always tell people, um, when, when I'm out there and I'm looking at how much medicinal salves and lip balms are, it's, um, you know, on one hand, I really want those people, those producers to get, compensated for their labor. Um, but on the other hand, it's just amazing how simple it is to make a salve. Uh, so yeah. I always feel a little bad that people are paying, you know, $20 for four ounces of, of something that only has three basic ingredients, right? Oil, beeswax, and plants. That's all it takes to make a salve or a lip balm. And, um, and, and so, you know, I, I really encourage people to, to learn um, their own, but I have to tell you about something that I am actually going to be eating today. Oh, and yes. it is, is only three ingredients and it's delicious and it's wonderful medicine. It's the best spring tonic and it's a soup that my mom taught me how to make. Um, and, and I call it a soup because you can eat it, but it's really a wonderful medicine. So all okay. it is, is um, a miso broth. So you just get mm-hmm. your miso paste and put it in hot water on the stove. And then you just add um, mugwort. So like the invasive <laughs> mugwort mm, that grows. Let's eat, eat yeah. those invasive. Yep, yep, exactly. We should all become invasivores. Um, but mugwort is a wonderful antiviral, um, antimicrobial um uh, plant that will help to like, it's very cleansing. It'll help to, to clean you out. So it is, you know, very tonifying. And, um, so all it is, is this miso broth, you know, you put your miso in your hot water, then you add a handful of mugwort and you let that wilt just for a few seconds. And then I, I like to add rice cakes into mine. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. And that's it. It's just some rice cakes, uh, and, and not simple. the puffy rice cakes that people get. I, I want to make that clear for people who don't know, but you can buy a bag of frozen rice cakes. They have this beautiful chewy texture. Um, you can get them in the frozen section of any Asian market. 
And uh, uh, that's okay. all it is. It's miso paste, mugwort, and rice cakes. And it's so delicious. Um, you know, you can make it more complicated if you want by putting green onion and chilies over the top, but you don't have to do that. Nice. I've, I've done something similar just with miso and, and nettles, which are, are great. I have not connect, collected mugwort. Can you say, like, um, like what's the range on where that grows and, and where would you normally find yours? Is it growing by anything else that you'd want to look for it or...? Yeah. Um, well, if you, if you're in the Northeast, it's in everyone's lawns. <laughs> it's just it's a okay. really, really common weed. Um, but, uh, and, and it does grow actually in Minnesota and, uh, Wisconsin, Michi- Michigan, you know, in the Midwest there, Ohio, um, it's, it's less common as a weed there, but, uh, still, you know, possible. And if you, um, don't, mind bitterness you can actually use any of those artemisias so that would be the you know artemisia vulgaris um the mugwort but if you have artemisia annua if you have artemisia absinthium even which is you know highly invasive here in the dakotas um you know it's it's still possible for you to use those they're a little more bitter but especially if you get them in the spring and you put them in the soup they're delicious uh and you know still have all that beautiful medicine um and then you can also grow uh the artemisias including the asian species i can't remember the scientific name but uh you know it's the one that's really popular in a lot of asian cuisine and in korea in particular so uh yeah you know very easy to find and you know i think nettles would be a fantastic substitute if you don't Mm. have um if you don't have those and of course people use nettles a lot as a springtime tonic like in europe and, and places like that uh but we will, uh, oh, another one that you can use that's also considered an invasive is um, Barbaria vulgaris. It's that oh, yeah. mustard, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, with the roots and everything. And that actually adds a really nice, sharp flavor. I mean, you know, you yeah, can replace it with a lot of those nice springtime plants. So. Yeah, I love that, like, slight burn, the kind of the mustard horseradish almost vibe. Me too. <laughs> those, are, those are great. Well, I'm I'm curious, um, what's inspiring you these days? Like, is there anything you're reading or discovering in the world of plants or plant medicine? Oh gosh. <laughs> well, you know, you you talked about Robin, uh, Robin yeah. Tremor, and of course, braiding sweetgrass is a seminal work, and it's changing the world. And I think that everyone should read it. But even more than reading it, uh, everyone should get the audio book and and listen to her (laughs) listen to her read it because she reads it and you know i i will tell you all that what you listen to there is her like that is who she is in real life and it she's beautiful um i mentioned nicole redvers earlier and she has a beautiful book sacred oh science of the sacred Science Mm, of the Sacred by Nicole Redvers. Uh, I'm rereading it again, and it's absolutely fantastic. Um, I've I've really been um, getting into uh, cookbooks lately, and uh, I, you know, I uh, Tashia Hart H A R T has the Goodberry Cookbook out, and it's wonderful. Um, uh, So I highly recommend that one. Um, Oh gosh. 
you know, I'm, I'm very, very much into reading. Um, oh, you know, I just uh, got um, Waziyatawi, W-A-Z-I-Y-A-T-A-W-I-N, Waziyatawi. It means North Woman in Dakota. And um, she has uh, uh, an amazing book called What Does Justice Look Like? out uh, that I highly, highly recommend. So yeah, <laughs> I could keep going. Oh, let me, let me tell uh, one more. And um, so I just got an incredible uh, Gullah Geechee cookbook. Um, yes. Uh, and, and it's, it's called Bress and Nyam, uh Gullah Geechee recipes from a sixth generation farmer by Matthew Rayford, R-A-I-F-O-R-D. And mm. I am so excited to cook some of the recipes in there and to just, you know, I think that um, uh, we really need to start paying a lot more attention to our um, Gullah relatives and, and to Black Indigenous relatives and to the, the um, that joining together of African-American plant knowledge and Indigenous uh, North American plant knowledge is really beautiful. So, <laughs> yeah. And for those that haven't heard that term, that's like a, a black indigenous cuisine of the Carolinas, right? The coastal kind of area um, and represents a lot of the, the, the plants found there. Is that how you, how you yeah. see it as well? Yep, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's so, you know, they have, of course, their own, uh, their own ethnobotany that's really profound and beautiful. And um, I've, I've learned a lot from, uh, from them, you know, and, and wow, the cuisine is just fantastic. <laughs> if you're into greens as much as I am, uh, definitely pick that cookbook up. Well, I know what I am going to be eating the next few days. So thank you for these really fun ideas. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You can follow Linda Black Elk on Instagram at lynda.black.elk and read her writing at culturalsurvival.org by searching for Linda Black Elk in the search bar, where you'll find several of her articles on plant medicine and food sovereignty. Open Air Humans is a production of Credo Nonfiction. See and hear more at credononfiction.com. And we'd love to see and hear from you. As part of Open Air Humans, we're collecting something we call Open Air Diaries. We'd love a simple story from you about a moment you were out in nature and became awestruck. Tell us about a time you experienced something that made you feel a deeper or more profound connection to the world around you. If you'd be so kind to record that story on your phone is great and email that audio file to openairhumans at gmail.com. We'll be collecting these and playing one at the end of each episode moving forward. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending your time with us and sharing your life with us out here in the open air.